We're going to look at the scriptures together now. Uh, back in Romans, we're continuing our Romans series. We'll be in Romans for a couple more weeks, and then we'll take a little detour for the Thanksgiving and Christmas season as we focus on just the concept of God bringing Jesus into the world, what we celebrate at Christmas time, often called Advent, because that means the arrival uh, of someone that's important, that's amazing, that changes everything. So it's this Advent of Jesus coming into the world that we celebrate at Christmas, and we'll be looking at scriptures that pertain to that. And then we'll jump back into Romans in the new year. So that's just kind of a look at where we're headed. So today we'll be in Romans chapter 4, finishing up chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles under the chairs in front of you. I'd encourage you to grab one of those Bibles so you can follow along. Uh, we're covering a lot of verses today. Um, chapter 4, verses 13 through 25, and it can be found on page 941, 942 in those black Bibles that are under the chairs. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can keep that. We'd, we'd love for you to take one of those as well. Um, we're calling it this morning, Why Faith Matters. Why Faith Matters. We introduced the idea of faith last week. Paul showed us that there's this pattern of faith from the Old Testament. It wasn't just a new idea that came out of nowhere, but it's a very crucial, important thing that goes all the way back to Abraham. And he's going to continue that argumentation this week. I, I heard a story years ago uh, about a woman who, when she would make a roast for her family, she would always cut the end off of the roast before she would cook it. And her daughter asked her one time, Mom, why do you cut the end off the roast? And she was like, well, that's what my mom always did. I'm not really sure. And she had the opportunity later on to ask her mom why she cut the end off the roast. And her mom said, well, because I had a small pan and it wouldn't fit in the pan otherwise. <laughs> and sometimes we continue these traditions in our families, right? Not really knowing where they come from, not knowing why we're, we're doing this. And so Paul is helping us to look back at all these important things in our faith and our religion and say, okay, are you, are you ordering these things correctly? Do you understand the role that the law plays in your life? Do you understand the role that faith plays in your life? Do you understand how faith opens up the door for us to be relying on God by grace? And so that's what Paul's unpacking, why faith matters for us this week. So again, chapter 4, verses 13 through 25, and it says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be Heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherence of the law, if it is the adherence of the law, who are to be heirs, faith is then null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. So key verse for this whole section, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. He was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver according concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to help us to take this in today. God, we 
We ask for your help. We pray that we would be able to receive your word. God, we confess uh, skepticism. We confess sometimes a sense of hopelessness, but, but you tell us that, that there's reasons to hope. And so we pray that your spirit would meet us here and help us to be open, help our minds, our hearts to, to receive and to listen to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we try to understand what Paul is saying here about why faith matters, the first thing that Paul hits on is the importance of grace. As I said, looking at that verse, there's a key verse that faith is really about grace. So in a sense, faith is, can be a confusing concept because faith is not really about faith. Faith is about other things. Faith is about God and what he's doing for us. Faith is about Jesus and what he's accomplished for us on the cross. Faith is about grace. An uh, acronym I've given to you all before is God's riches at Christ's expense. That can help you kind of memorize or think about what grace means. Grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. But often, as people before God, we want to deal with God according to wages. And we saw that last week. We want to deal with God and say, God, I've done this, so you owe me this in return for what I've done. But the God of the Bible doesn't deal with people that way. Um, The God of the Bible is a God of grace. And so we should come to him not wanting what our wages deserve, because ultimately the scriptures say that's death. That's separation from God. That's what we deserve. But we should come to him wanting grace, wanting something kind and free and unmerited and undeserved. So reading that key verse again is verse 16. It says, that is why it depends on faith. Why? Why does it depend on faith? In order that the promise may rest on grace. So it's a, it's a grace issue. It's not about keeping the law, doing things yourself, impressing God. No, we should keep the law because God has done for us already, but we don't keep the law to win God's favor. God gives us grace. So faith is about grace. He says in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be <clears throat> heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So again, he's kind of covering ground we covered last week. He's saying, Abraham didn't keep the law and impress God. And then God looked at Abraham and said, Abraham, you've kept the law so well, I am now going to bless you. He came to Abraham who was like a non-Jewish pagan, right? This was pre-Judaism. This was before Moses. This was before the law. This was before the descendants of Abraham. He comes to Abraham, who's worshiping other gods, and says, follow me, trust me. And it tells us that he trusted in God's promise. And then Abraham lived that out. He then responded to God by the right of circumcision and obeying God and following God. But the promise and the grace came first. And so Paul's helping us to see, okay, it's, it's always been about faith. It's always been about faith. So the heirs of the world didn't take place. He didn't become an heir. He didn't become an inheritor of the blessing. This promise was, I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants, Abraham. I'm going to save the world, basically. Abraham trusts him. But that didn't happen because of Abraham's law keeping. Look at verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So listen to his logic here. If you can impress God enough to be saved, then a gracious promise is meaningless. That by uh, definition wipes out God's gracious promises that came before the law. So Paul's saying, therefore, when the law came hundreds of years later, it couldn't have been undoing that because God already started with promise. He already started with grace. Law had to be something that, that was uh, in response to the grace. It couldn't, it couldn't be instead of grace because Abraham was saved by God making a promise and Abraham trusting him. 
That's the logic that Paul is trying to communicate here. It makes the promise null and void. Look at verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, on a a first reading, what that could sound like is uh, the pagan people that don't have God's law, therefore, there's no sin. And, And that's not what he's saying because we know that out of context, right? Because Paul already clarified in Romans chapter 1 that people without God's law and people with God's law all have a basic understanding of God's requirements. So you can have it explicit in God's word, or you could grow up without God's word and just know his revelation from creation, Paul tells us, right? Romans chapter 1 says, all people see that God exists, we know that we owe our allegiance to him, and we run from him. So we're all guilty. So he's not saying that people without God's law or non-Jews are not guilty. He's just clarifying here, hey, if you think you're going to be saved by the law, the law actually makes you more guilty. Transgression is a, is a technical term for sin. Sin is a general term of, of failing to please God, of failing to do what's right. Transgression is a more narrow kind of definition of sin that means there's a stated law and you broke it, right? And so he's just clarifying, hey, those of you that have the law and you think you're in better shape because of that, you're actually in worse shape, right? You're more responsible to what God has told you because it just is more explicit. You know more of what you should do, but you're still not doing it. So again, he undermines those of us who are religious saying, but I hang out with the religious people and I know God's commands, but you're not obeying him. I'm not obeying him. We can't be saved by being perfect, by being righteous. And then we come to verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. So again, he's reiterating that Abraham is the father of all people, Jews and non-Jews, people with God's law, people without God's law, because Abraham was saved as a non-Jew pre-law. He was saved as a pagan. And so he's the model for those of us that maybe grew up outside the church without God's law. He's the model of you can be saved by trusting in God, not by being a part of the right religious community. And so he's saying, that's always how God saved people. Those that had the law, those that didn't have the law, they were all saved by faith. Those with the law had other responsibilities and other things they were called on to do, but they were saved by faith. No one has ever been saved by keeping the law. Jesus is the only person that ever kept the law completely. And so he's clarifying here. He's the father of us all, by faith, not by flesh, not by law keeping, not by being a part of the Jewish community. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of of many nations. We'll stop there and we'll pick up the next section uh, of 17. But I want us to think about how we relate to God. Last week we used the time clock imagery and we said most of us want to relate to God and say, God, you owe me when the scriptures clearly say that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So are you going to relate to God as if he owes you something? Or are you going to come to him with the empty hands of faith saying, God, I desire grace from you. I know you are a gracious God. I'm going to rely on your promise keeping, on you being the one that contributes salvation. We understand that to be given to us in Jesus so that Jesus takes the punishment for our sins and gives us his righteousness so that God is pleased with us because of what Jesus has done, not what we have done, not by how well we've kept the law and performed for him. Do you believe in that kind of grace? It's really important to think about. I was thinking about one of the ways that, that Jesus explains the difference between grace and laws in John 7. An illustration that Jesus gives in John chapter 7 is he talks about 
uh, faith being something that then gives us an unending flow of living waters. So think about it this way. How, how gracious would it be for me to give a bottle of water to a person and say, here's a bottle of water. This should take care of you for the rest of your life. Go live a full 80 years with this one bottle of water. Would that work? Your basic knowledge of biology, is that going to work for a person? No. The law is like giving someone a bottle of water. Are there blessings there? Yeah, but, but it's going to run out. It, it's, it's not enough. Jesus says in John chapter 7, if you come to me, if you believe in me, then as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within you. It's an unending supply. The, the Holy Spirit will come within you and give you life from the outside because you don't have life on your own. So there's a difference between law and gospel. God's grace is this unending supply. If you thirst, if you recognize your need, Jesus says, come to me and I'll satisfy your thirst. I'll satisfy your thirst. A lot of the um, missions that goes on around the world in third world countries is making sure people have a permanent water supply. Uh, With our sister's churches in Guatemala, that's part of the work we've done is trying to help them have more stable water supplies in outlying areas where uh, the government's not really taking care of them. They're kind of ignored. They're a race and a class that aren't really loved, and they're kind of set aside. And so we go in and try to show grace by helping them have what they need, right? And so this imagery is this overflowing water, Jesus says. John seven thirty seven. If anybody thirsts, come to me, he says. So my question for you this morning is, do you thirst? Do you recognize your need? God is a God of grace. And faith, again, is not about, you know, looking at yourself and examining how, how faithy am I, you know, how strong is my faith? Faith points us to it's uh, relying on a God who provides for us. It's not relying on ourselves; it's relying on him. And so faith is really about grace. It's about a God who provides when you can't provide for yourself. The next thing that Paul starts to explain is that faith is unnatural. Faith is unnatural. What that means is you can't rely on your natural abilities. You can't rely on your flesh is one of the ways that he's described it uh, in previous chapters, right? So we've all got different gifts. You've all got different strengths. And my challenge for you and my challenge for me is that we shouldn't rely on those gifts to be what secures our future and makes things right between us and God in this broken world. This world is full of death. It's full of disease. It's full of pain. And we should recognize that ultimately we're a part of that death and disease and pain ourselves. And we need something from the outside that's unnatural and alien to come in and save us. So if you pick up kind of midway in verse 17, Paul continues his argument about the unnatural grace that God has for us in Christ. He says, In the presence of the God in whom he believed, whom gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's how dramatic our need is. We need a God who can create something when there's nothing there. We need a God that can come to us when we're dead and resurrect us and give us life. Problem is, most of us don't actually believe that the, that the problem is that severe, right? Most of us think, ah, we're fine. I don't really need anything. You know, God, it's okay. Maybe I just need a Christian bumper sticker and I'll be fine. You know, I don't, seri- you know the issue's not really that serious. I'm not really dead. I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of limping. I just need a crutch or something. You know, I need a little help. But the scriptures continually tell us, no, we're spiritually dead. We're spiritually dead. We need a God who can give life. Look at verse 18. In hope he believed against hope 
that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So he's believing in this promise that God says, you're going to have descendants even though you're barren, and you're going to save the world, or the world will be saved through these descendants. Verse 19 says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, because he was 100 years old. So no offense to those of you that are 100 years old in the room today, but Paul is saying you're as good as dead, right? God, I think, sometimes uses these extreme cases to help us understand. In reality, spiritually, we're all as good as dead. Spiritually, we're all dead. Ephesians makes that very clear. Anyone that knows Jesus was dead in transgressions and sins, and then in Christ, he made us alive. So we're all spiritually dead, and God makes us alive. And so sometimes God gives these real extreme cases to help, help it be more clear, right? So, so Abraham, so we didn't miss it. Abraham's this extreme case where he's 100 years old. His body is as good as dead. Problem is, those of you that are young, Colleen's a very young town. Those of you in your 20s, it's harder to realize how dead you are, right? It's easier to rely on your strengths, on your natural abilities. Um, those of us that are older, we're, we're closer to death, right? I'm in my 40s, and I, I see now how dead I am more clearly than I did when I was in my 20s. When I was in my 20s, I thought I was pretty impressive. And then God just lets little pieces of my body die more and more and more, right? As I get older, those of you in your 60s, you're, you, you're closer than me, right? You get it. And so there's this, this kind of beauty in how God's made the natural world that as we decay, hopefully, we come to terms with that reality. And that's a pointer, not just to our physical situation, but to our spiritual situation. We are, we're as good as dead. And with Abraham at 100 years old, it was even more stark. And he goes on, not just about Abraham, who he says uh, was 100 years old, it says, or when he considered the barrenness, literally the deadness of Sarah's womb. She was like 90 years old. So God comes to a 190-year-old and says, you're going to have a baby, right? So he's just trying to to really weight how impossible, unnatural, and crazy this is, that he's the God that brings life where no one else can bring life. question is, what, what do you rely on in the face of death in this world? It's really interesting because one of the things I've had to adapt to uh, with Fort Hood culture is a lot of emphasis on death and symbols of death, right? And there's some good reasons for that. The, uh, Romans 13 says that the power of the sword has been given to soldiers and police. And so the state has like a right and appropriate um, power of death that is handed to them, basically to, to punish evildoers, to keep evil from just taking over the world, right? So that's appropriate. But it's also kind of shocking if you've come from more of a civilian town to move into this town where there's just these symbols of death and skulls and crossbones and, you know, knives and daggers and guns everywhere you go. It's just, you know, on all the trucks, I have a picture here of three core, uh, their symbol is the Phantom Warrior, right? He's basically some kind of like Grim Reaper superhero mashup or something, right? He's a symbol of death. There's, there's all kinds of uh, mascots. Uh, that's probably the wrong word, right? But like, you know, death dealers. I, I had a friend years ago give me a, a patch from his uh, helicopter unit, and I, I love this patch because uh, their, their motto was Velox Pulpitum Mortis. If you don't know what that means in Latin, that's swift pulpit of death. So I've always wanted to put it on my pulpit, you know, to be like, watch out. This is a swift pulpit of death, right? But I thought that might come across the wrong way. Um, I think it can also mean swift platform of death, which is, you know, the idea of uh, dealing judgment, again, as, a, as 
an arm of the state, having the power of the sword. So I use all that to set up that there's this, there's a symbolism that we see in death that sometimes we take on as having power over death. If you think about the psychology of it, there's people that know that death is coming and they run from it, right? They're like, man, I'm just going to do everything I can to survive, to stay alive, to stay young, to do whatever I can. And then there's people that know that death is coming and so they become fascinated with symbols of death because it's like they want to stare death in the face and say, I'm not scared of you. The question is, does that work, right? And again, I know I'm probably a little too close to home because a lot of you have these stickers on your cars, but, but does have a, having a bumper sticker on your car that says, I'm a tough guy that's not scared of death, does that actually defeat death? Does that actually cut it? Paul would say, Paul would say, that's not going to work. I mean, that's great. Maybe you find some psychological comfort in being a tough guy and acting like you're not afraid of death. But Paul would say the only way that you can escape death is by a God who can resurrect the dead. That's your only option. That's the only thing that actually works. And so my, my question for you is what, what are you looking to, to save you in this world that is, without dispute, a world of death and pain? Again, if you're in your 20s, maybe you don't know as well as the rest of us, but it is. It's a world of pain. It's a, a world of death. It's a world of brokenness. What, what is your hope? in this world? What are you relying on? Are you relying on your your natural abilities? There's something very appropriate about using the natural gifts that we have. Paul even tells us in the New Testament letters and Peter and others as well that God gifts everybody in the church in different ways and we kind of bring our different gifts to the table and we all share them, but we all share them as gifts from God's hands for God's glory but they become something completely different when we're relying on them as our hope in this, this life. Abraham, it was clear, he couldn't rely on his gifts to save him. God just made it really clear. For a lot of us, we need to, we need to more seriously think about it. Are, are you relying on your gifts as your hope in this broken world? Or are you saying, this gift is just something that I can use to bless others, it's something I can use to glorify God, it's something that God's given me that I'm gonna use, you know, I'm good at organization or I'm good at helping people or I'm good uh, in uh, serving people or whatever your gifts may be. I can use those gifts to help other people, to bring life in a world of death and brokenness, but ultimately, it's not the answer. Ultimately, God is the answer. And only when you know that God is the answer and he's the only one that can raise the dead, only then can your gifts be used freely with reckless abandon, not putting all your weight and all your stock in them. So I'd ask you to, to pray about that this week. I'd, I'd say, think through, what are your natural abilities? What are your strengths? What are your gifts that God has given you? And say, God, get alone in your prayer, prayer closet. God, am I, am I using these to save myself? Am I thinking that my gifts are, are the answer? That my natural abilities can help me? God, give me the clarity that you gave to Abraham. Help me to see that I'm as good as dead. And I have to trust in you by faith, not in my natural ability. So, so faith is unnatural. Faith means not trusting your natural abilities. That doesn't mean throwing them out, right? You use them, but you use them as one who's not trusting in them, who's, who's trusting in Jesus and what he's accomplished. And then you use your gifts as gifts from the Father's hands. It's a very important distinction to make. Right now, we're facing a weird time in our country's history. Our country has all kinds of 
great gifts, right? All kinds of great things to offer the world. And many people right now are, are grieving the, the collapse of some of those strengths and gifts of our country. We're facing an election. A couple of days, those of you that haven't voted early are going to vote. There's, there's no way to vote and, and feel clean about it. There's just no way. There's, there's no voting option where you can say, I did the clean, wonderful thing that's going to give grace and life to me and everyone else, right? You have to pray and by faith say, God, help me to vote the right way. Help me to do what I can do, but help me to not rely on this voting. It's, it's been really interesting to see all the articles of people so angry about all the options because, because we want what we do to justify ourselves. We want what we do to be something we can wave a flag and say, look at how great I am. Look at what I did. God says, you can't relate to me that way. You have to relate to me relying by faith on what I've done for you. Does that mean then we don't make decisions? No, we make decisions. We don't make those decisions thinking, I'm going to make this decision and it's going to justify me. And I'm going to be one of the good guys, right? It's a prudential choice. You pray and ask God for wisdom. God, help me to make the best choice I can with all the sorry options that I've got. And then you, you try to do the best that you can. But the vote can't justify you. Only Jesus can justify you. No natural ability, no natural strength can make us safe. So that's why we have to rely on faith in God. The, the next thing that Paul shows us is that faith is vulgar. Um, and I apologize for using that word. It's a vulgar word, right? Verse 22, look at verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the kind of immediate way we commonly use the word vulgar is just kind of crass, gross, right? Like nasty language. But historically, the word um, takes its meaning from being common people, being like outsiders, right? So do you see yourself as a common person, an unclean outsider, or do you see yourself as one of the good guys? Faith is vulgar. Faith says you, you can't be one of the good guys because all human beings have failed. You can't be one of the good guys. And this is what he's trying to hammer home to the, the Jewish people. You've got God's law. That just makes you more guilty, You've got God's blessings, but that means you owe more, right? None of us are the good guys. We're all outsiders. We're all vulgar in that sense. Faith is trusting in the God who makes outsiders insiders by the miracle of supernatural adoption. We're orphans, and he takes us and says, I'm going to put you in my family. I'm going to save you by grace as you trust in me by faith. That's our only hope. So Paul's saying this this stuff that was written for Abraham was really written for the Jews. It was also written for us today also. For those of us that are outsiders, it just isn't, it's not just some distant ancient text, but it has great meaning for you and me. It's, it's our hope to take those of us who are on the outside and, and bring us in and make us a part of the family of God. I was thinking of an illustration of this just the other day. The Cubs won the World Series. Did you all hear this? The Cubs, yeah, for like, what, 100 and something year? 108, yeah. So there was this interesting episode where, well, where Bill Murray had an extra ticket, and there was this poor lady that was just dying to get a ticket. She was kind of wandering around looking to try to find a ticket she could scalp or find or something. And Bill Murray, just in his benevolence and his graciousness, 
gave her his ticket, right? Now, you want to be careful. I don't think Bill Murray is Jesus, right? But there was this, there's this kind of graciousness where he took an outsider and he brought her in. He made her an insider. And, and the gospel, that's the kind of story that the gospel is. It's a story of all of us being outsiders, all of us being on the outside wishing we had a ticket. Jesus comes along and he gives us a ticket. So my question is, what is, what is your self-image? I debate this sometimes uh, with a friend. We shouldn't just see ourselves as sinners, right? We shouldn't just beat ourselves up and be like, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. But we do need to start there. We need to start with, I'm a sinner and I've failed and I'm on the outside. And you know what happened? Good news. God took a sinner who's on the outside without a ticket and he brought me in. And now I'm on the inside and now I belong to him and now he loves me. And because of that, I can live my life with reckless abandon and I can be generous to other people too. So then my job can be being generous, just like Jesus was generous to me. My job can be inviting others in to share the blessings that I have because I know I'm taken care of. If you see yourself as an outsider only, you're an orphan on the outside wishing you could get in, then you're going to fight and scrap and hurt other people to get ahead. But if you see yourself as an adopted son or daughter of God who's pleased with you in Christ, that word we saw a couple of weeks ago, propitiousness, propitiation, that means because of what Jesus has done for you, God is pleased with you. He smiles on you. He loves you. He's delighted in you. If you really see God that way, then you're going to love other people. Then you're going to invite outsiders in as well. So we see faith as vulgar because it's, a, it's an invitation to outsiders, common people, people that don't belong and saying, no, you belong now because of what Jesus has done for you. So we have to understand all that God has done for us in Christ. As we wrap up, I was thinking about Um, These are just big ideas, right? The faith, the grace that God has for us, the heart change, the mind change of I'm no longer an orphan. I'm now an insider. I'm now adopted. I'm now loved. And all of these things are important. That's why faith matters. And I was thinking, what are, you know, concrete things we're supposed to do because of this? What are things we're supposed to do? And I, I see three big categories that Paul works through as we go through the entire book of Romans. I encourage you to just kind of read through the whole book as we're studying it verse by verse. But as you go through the book of Romans, one thing that Paul hammers really hard is that we should live in a new way, basically obey God's laws because of this grace that we have in Jesus. And so Paul says, we're going to live differently. We're going to live in a holy way. We're going to obey God's laws because of what God has done for us. We don't live in a holy way to impress God. We live because he's saved us and because he loves us. And so now in Christ, we look at God and say, wow, God loves me. God really, really loves me. So maybe his rules are a good idea. Maybe doing what God says would actually be good. If he loves me that much to die for me, if he's come after me, then maybe I could trust him. Maybe I could start obeying his ways of living. So that's one of the big applications throughout the book of Romans. Another one is, if I see... Wait for it. Okay. If I see that God has taken an outsider and made him an insider, then how's that going to change how I relate to other people, right? That's going to make us the kind of community where we stop judging each other and be like, well, you're, I don't know, you don't measure up, I'm not sure about you, you smell bad. But we're going to start loving outsiders and welcoming each other into community. 
We're going to be a family of families that's always inviting outsiders in. That's going to be how we're marked. And then finally, Paul talks about how we live in society. We live in such a way in society where we partake, right, where we uh, participate in society. We're the kind of people that vote and obey the laws of our society, but we also at the same time recognize that we're not under the laws of the society. We're under ultimately the laws of the new heavens and the new earth, and that's where our hope is. So we're going to obey the law. We're going to honor the kings, the people in, in authority over us. We're going to see that our ultimate hope is in heaven. Paul talks about it in Philippians where he says our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. We're not ultimately citizens of this world, and, and that's what actually makes us better citizens here and now. That helps us to participate because our ultimate hope isn't in the here and now. I had a quote um, from Calvin that I thought was really helpful about what it's like living in this world of brokenness and, and pain. And he says this, All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality, but we are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just, but we're covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious or kind to us, yet outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us, that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. So we're, we're surrounded by death and pain and difficulty, but because we serve a God who can raise the dead, we must pass through those things with closed eyes, not fixating on the pain and the brokenness we see around us, but fixating on a God who can make things that are not and declare that they will be, who can raise us from the dead. And that's where the section ends uh, with verse 24 and 25. We believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Justification means God sees you as just. It means he delights in you and sees you as righteous because Jesus rose from the dead and conquered sin and death for you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you've shown us the grace that you have towards us, your kindness to us. You've shown us that in Jesus. He died to take away our sins, and he rose to new life, establishing the security of the victory we have in him and in you. We pray that you would continue remaking us. We pray that we would live in new ways because of the salvation we have in Jesus, that we wouldn't uh, attempt to perform and keep the law so that we can win your love, but we would know by faith we have won your love in Christ, and because of that, we would live in a new way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.